Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. The nature of work continues to change dramatically in response to rapidly developing technologies and shifting global competitive realities. Are you prepared to lead the competitive and sustainable organization of the future? In this HCI podcast episode, I address these topics and explore the innovations in the HR world and the shifting future of work. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to have you joining us for the first Human Capital Innovations webinar. Today's webinar is titled Innovative HR and the Future of Work, uh, and I will be the presenter today. And I'm excited to have the opportunity to share these materials with you. Uh, as a little bit of a personal background, um, I am the managing partner and principal at Human Capital Innovations. I'm also associate professor of organizational leadership at Utah Valley University and also the academic director for the Center for Social Impact. And I've been at Utah Valley University for 11 years, and I've been involved with Human Capital Innovations for 13 years. Uh, it's an exciting opportunity to uh, match academic research with practitioner-oriented outcomes for our um, for our business professionals and for our students alike. And so that's something that I feel passionate about and I love having the opportunity uh, to do in my work here at UVU. I have been doing consulting work for a really long time. And uh, in addition to the roles that I just explained, I'm also a faculty fellow in the Center, um, faculty fellow for ethics and public life in the Center for the Study of Ethics and have really been involved in a lot of interdisciplinary approaches to dealing with organizational challenges and issues in organizations for the past 20 years of my career. Uh, and it's an exciting opportunity for us to learn and grow together to assess the needs and challenges facing organizations and to help organizations grow, improve, and become more healthy and safe environments for everyone that is um, connected with them. So what I hope to cover over the next uh, probably 45 minutes, and then we'll take some time for question and answers if anyone has any questions, um, is as follows. So first, why strategic human resource management? Um, looking a little bit at the research on employee engagement and organizational culture across nationally, um, because that's a key area of my academic research and how I try to bridge the, the gap between uh, academic research and practitioner-oriented um, research, uh, look at the changing trajectories of work, the need for interdisciplinarity in our work with organizations, the drivers of the future of work, the future of work and the implications for strategic HR uh, in the coming decades, 
the rise of the gig economy and implications for the future of HR, and ultimately skills we need to develop to maintain relevance in the workforce. Uh, hopefully this will be meaningful and valuable content for you. And if you have any questions, uh, please uh, have them ready uh, at the end of my presentation. And I'm happy to take questions, but also please feel free to reach out to me um, offline. And I'm happy to engage with you and discuss um, your organization and the types of needs that you face. All right, um, so why strategic human resource management? Ultimately, HR is all about the policies, practices, and systems that influence employees' behavior, attitudes, and performance. And those are concentric circles, perhaps, or you can think of it as a Venn diagram. I think there's different ways of approaching it, but ultimately, they're interconnected. That's the key point, um, that behavior uh, influences attitudes, which influence performance, but performance also influences attitudes and behavior and vice versa. So they're all interconnected and they all um, build off of each other. And HR's role is really to address each of those issues. And so organizations need to think need to think strategically, not about each piece in isolation, but they need to consider all of them collectively and how all the policies, practices, and systems within the organization either support and reinforce and help to sustain and maintain these types of um, positive behaviors, attitudes, and performance. And when those don't happen and when there's institutional mechanisms in place or systems in place that actually detract from uh, the the positive behaviors and attitudes and performance that you're looking for. Uh, it's an incredibly common organizational challenge that most organizations face. The fact that uh, there's unhealthy systems and there's uh, counterproductive systems um, that are often in place. And so we need to think about how to address those. Companies with effective human resource management, I mean, there's so much research that shows that effective HR and effective organizational leadership drives higher levels of employee and customer satisfaction, um, that companies with effective HR, not just transactional HR, not just dealing with payroll and not just dealing with, you know, the technicalities behind the scenes, um, but like really strategic HR that these companies are more innovative, they have higher levels of productivity, and they have much better reputations in the community, which translates into better uh, customer retention, higher sales, um, stronger revenues, uh, greater market share, and so on. So pretty much a successful organization needs successful people management. It needs HR that is strategically minded that can help the organization address all of its needs as they interconnect with each other uh, and not allow us to get so siloed into uh, trying to understand how to affect organizations to be effective. Um, I think it's healthy and, and important to take a human capital perspective as we think about HR and people management. I mean, think for a minute, think about how much time and energy investment and maintenance that companies put into their other forms of capital. You have financial capital, you have plant equipment, uh, property, you have intellectual capital, you have all these different forms of capital um, and companies go to great lengths to protect it, to maintain it, to uh, invest in it and, and support it. And unfortunately, often the human capital component which is essential to driving innovation, um, that component gets, gets a, a lower priority in a lot of organizations. Um, and so uh, to their detriment, 
they, they, they focus on the other forms of capital and they, they aren't doing enough to show value to employees, to invest in their employees. And that has serious ramifications for the long-term sustainable success of an organization. And that human capital that can be seen as an employee's aggregate of like all of those things that they bring to the table. So certainly the knowledge, skills, and abilities that they bring to the table um, and their, their background, right? But sometimes it's some of the intangibles that, that uh, also are incredibly important and meaningful to organizations. Their, their aggregate of training, past experience, their judgment, um, their intelligence, relationships, and insight. You know, all those things that, that together create uh, wisdom and create uh, the opportunity for people to address complex problems uh, and, and innovate in, you know, new creative solutions. Uh, that's what we need in the organizations of today. And that's what the, the future of work is going to require is that organizations invest in their human capital and that they really uh, put an emphasis behind how they value their employees. I share this slide because I think it's really, really important to remember that everyone who's involved in any level of organizational leadership is doing HR and people management on a regular basis. So as we think about strategic HR and the importance of it within an organization, uh, then everyone, even all the way down to the line supervisor who, who, who uh, supervises you know, two or three people, everyone in the organization um, is doing HR and people management stuff. So here in this diagram, you see, you know, take for instance, a typical supervisor on the plant floor in a factory, okay? Um, they, they oversee a small team of people. Um, you know, they're not an HR person. They, they probably don't have any HR background. Um, they probably came up on the, on the plant floor and, and from a different position and ultimately took on a supervisory role over time. Um, but it's important that that person understands their people management role and how important they are in helping the organization to succeed because they're doing things like helping to define the nature of the job that their team is doing and, and defining jobs, job analysis, job design. That is so foundationally important to effective HR and people management. They, they're the ones on the front lines doing forecasting of HR needs. They're the ones on the front lines often doing training. Um, you know, sometimes large corporations will have training departments or they'll bring in consultants. Um, but most mid-sized to smaller organizations, they don't have special trainers or training departments. It's the managers and the supervisors that do the training. Uh, they're the ones that uh, are face-to-face -face with their employees all the time. And so do they know how to train effectively? Do they have that skill set? The reality is most don't. And so that's something you need to invest in with your supervisors. Um, they're usually the ones doing the interviewing uh, and ultimately the selecting candidates. So do they know how to interview effectively? Do they know um, the staffing uh, process and how to staff effectively? Do they know what they're looking for? Like the actual um, characteristics and competencies that are important and are, you know, so they're not just relying on their own bias. Uh, in terms of what's gonna help the team succeed. They're the ones on the front lines appraising performance. They're recommending uh, pay increases and promotions. They're communicating policies. Um, and ultimately it's their job to motivate their employees, right? Through coaching, through mentoring, through regular feedback, those sorts of things um, connected to 
pay and benefits and other rewards. Um, supervisors are doing that. All these things are people management. And, and so everyone in the organization needs to at least be functionally literate with HR and they need to understand the role it plays for organizational success. Uh, and it's been my experience that that's not the case in most organizations, frankly. Uh, and it's, it's really too bad because it's a missed opportunity. So why? Like, why do we do all this, right? Um, what are the outcomes? And there's so much research that shows the outcomes for effective HR and people management, that, which translates into high-performance work systems. So when we have a high-performance work system, um, that's defined as creating a knowledge-sharing environment and creating well-designed, interesting jobs that people you know, are excited to come to work and, and complete and do. Right. So there's for each of these linkages that you see on the screen, um, each of those relationships, there's so much research that has been done uh, to demonstrate the value and uh, in, in the salience of those connections. Right. But interesting work, it leads to more satisfied workers, which leads to satisfied customers, which leads to higher sales, higher profits. Um, satisfied workers leads to lower absenteeism, lower turnover, lower withdrawal cognitions. Um, higher levels of organizational commitment. All of that leads to lower costs, uh, lower um, uh, staffing costs, right? Which leads to higher profits and strengthen, strengthens the bottom line. On the other side, knowledge, uh, creating a knowledge sharing environment in a high performance work system, that drives innovation, right? Innovation drives productivity. It drives higher quality, which in turn drives customer satisfaction, higher sales, higher profits, so on and so forth. So it is essential in a hyper-competitive global marketplace that, um, that organizations create high-performance work systems with well-defined and designed jobs where managers and leaders are successfully managing the people element of the organization to support the positive outcomes for the organization, higher profits, better sales, um, better products, right? All of that is what we're all interested in. And that's, you know, every organization wants. So to transition a little bit, um, let's think about uh, some of my own research in this area. Now, I've done extensive research looking at employee motivation, employee engagement, employee satisfaction, uh, and the drivers behind all of those, uh, and not just within the U.S. context, but cross-nationally, and looking across the world and the globe uh, to understand what, why are there differences in, in different places. Um, famously, Wetton said that meaning is derived by context. Observations are embedded and must be understood within a context. And so we can't just assume that our Western theories of management will equally apply as well to other sociocultural and geopolitical contexts. That's just not accurate. Uh, it simply is not accurate. And yet many organizations, um, excuse me, yet many organizations try that exact approach. They try a one-size-fits-all uh, approach where they try to replicate what they're doing in the U.S. and do it in other markets and in other places overseas. And ultimately, that is not going to be successful. So in my model, um, in my own research, I've done uh, many, many studies looking at different pieces of this, is that we do have country-specific cultural characteristics that are different across the globe. We do have country-specific contextual variables that are different across the globe in terms of geopolitical, sociocultural, um, human capital types of factors and differences, right? There are individual differences across 
uh, individual employees in across different types of firms, right? So all of those factors, you have to control for all of that and understand the unique elements in each of those contexts. And only then can you really see the difference behind the intrinsic factors, the extrinsic factors, the workplace relationships, work-life balance variables, all these different things that drive job satisfaction, uh, increased employee engagement, uh, productivity, and performance. Okay. Uh, and let me just say that the research is clear that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach as we look at, in my own study, looking at um, looking at uh, organizations across a wide range of countries. In fact, I've looked at organizations across 37 countries. So there, there are data sources that and that's available to anyone. So if you're interested in exploring this yourself and you have the, the uh, statistical know-how to do it, you can go look up the International Social Survey Program and find all sorts of in interesting information on a lot of variables, not just work-related variables. I just tend to focus on um, work-related issues, right? Uh, the World Value Survey is another really important and fantastic uh, resource where you can look at cultural differences across countries. And this is all free data. Anyone can access it and you can see comparisons and, you, um, and better understand how your organization can function uh, in a competitive environment uh, globally. All right. So I didn't want to take too much time on that, but um, but I would love to have the opportunity to talk with any of you about um, the specifics behind my own research and how I've translated that into my consulting practice and working with um, particular organizations to help them improve their systems uh, and processes and their organizational health. All right, let's switch gears and talk about changing trajectories of work. Um, so think about the last 50 years, think about the next 50 years. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball. There's no way to know what the next 50 years will actually be like. And there's so many moving parts and variables that can influence what the next 50 years would look like, right? Um, in fact, you know, you, you think about the climate today. Um, we have coronavirus. We have a kind of a unique political environment right now in the U.S. and globally um, that most people wouldn't have anticipated four years ago. Um, and so, you know, we, we don't know what the future holds, um, but we do see trends and trends are important and we do see how technology is advancing and that's important to inform how things are going to move forward in, in the future. As we look back, though, we, we do have a clear picture of the past. We, we know exactly what has happened. And what we see over the last 50 years is a continual swing globally towards integration, uh, towards globalization, towards interdependency of markets and economies. Uh, we see a shift in the nature and the type of work that's occurred over the last 50 years. Um, and take just the U.S. Obviously, this is different across countries. But take just the U.S. and think about what work was like in the U.S. 50 years ago versus what it's like today. And we went from being a predominantly production-based um, economy uh, to in a much larger agricultural sector to now we're predominantly a service sector economy, right? We do have still some production sector um, work uh, and we do have agricultural work, but as a percentage of the overall economy, it's, it's, it, it, it pales in comparison. And we're 80 plus percent service sector economy now. So the types of organizations, the types of jobs, the type of work that people do today is vastly different than what my grandparents did 50 years ago in many cases, right? Uh, obviously, it depends on the particular job we're talking about. So 
I think it's safe to assume that if we've seen dramatic changes over the last 50 years, in part fueled by globalization, in part fueled by technological innovation, that we can only expect to see more rapid transformation over the next 50 years, the next 20 years, the next decade, right? Um, and I thought it would be worthwhile just taking a few minutes and sharing with you. Um, this is from uh, a couple years ago, the World Economic Forum. There was a panel that looked at the global business context and their question specifically was the next 50 years. What do we expect to see in the workplace in the next 50 years? And this panel of experts, business executives, um, global leaders of high stature, they pretty much uniformly agreed upon these factors as being really key for organizations of all types to think about moving forward. They, they argue that there's going to be a movement from linear uh, from a linear type of organization to a latticed interconnected framework for all organizations where all activities at all times are interconnected and we're not going to have siloed organizations um, where you know you have hr over here and you have marketing over here and and so on and so forth people need to be interconnected and and tasks activities um, will will be interconnected they argue that every organizational leader needs to think of themselves as a challenger Assuming challenge and disruption, um, there's going to be converging markets, there's going to be consolidation of markets, there's going to be innovation that creates new markets, and every organizational leader to drive successful organizations that are um, sustainable and competitive will need to embrace disruption, which is counterintuitive, right, to our human nature where we, where, where, where we are, um, try to push away change and we try to, to uh, resist disruption. We need to see ourselves as challengers and disruptors in order for organizations to be successful. We need to push within our organizations a reskilling agenda um, to create value and encourage lifelong learning. Uh, now, this could change, of course, but take, for example, uh, the, the unemployment rate right now in the U.S. Uh, now, underemployment, that's a different story, right? We, we know that there's a huge amount of under, underemployment, but the unemployment rate is very low, which means at any given point in time, there actually aren't enough people actively looking for work to be applying for the openings that are available, um, just generally speaking. And then when you look at high tech type jobs, tech jobs that require technical skills, um, jobs within particular industries like healthcare um, and some service types of industries uh, in any tech related field in STEM field, like there's massive shortages in terms of skilled workers who have the skill set to be able to do those jobs, right? Now, companies can't afford to just think, oh, we'll just go find more people because it's a hyper competitive labor market right now. And you need to attract and, and retain good people, create value for them, invest in them and encourage lifelong learning, learning and help them reskill. You don't have the the the. Um, you don't have the luxury of just saying, oh, we don't need you anymore, so we're going to let you go and hire a new person with that skill set. Uh, you know, those, those people with that new skill set are in high demand. And so you need to find opportunities within the organization to help provide training and reskilling opportunities. Um, there's a, a lot of discussion about this placement of jobs, right, based on innovative and disruptive technologies. Um, so PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, uh, projects 40% of jobs will be replaced and displaced in the next 15 years. And there are other studies uh, and reports, uh, industry reports that suggest that even up to 80% of jobs 
um, will be displaced and or that there will be just like this massive amount of new jobs that don't even exist today that we can't even fathom or understand that will um, emerge in the coming decades. Uh, so particularly for low skilled um, types of positions that are easily automated, particularly for heavily routinized types of jobs that can be that technologies can um, can uh, take over many financial service sector jobs. There's so many jobs that simply the technologies will start to take over or displace. So the jobs won't completely go away, but um, the number of people needed to perform those jobs might shrink because they're technologically um, enhanced jobs, right? With, with resources to support them. The hunt for talent in robotic and automotive economy will be intense. All companies in the future need to think of themselves as tech companies because they will be heavily using technology. And I already mentioned the skills gap, but tapping into other untapped labor markets and this real focus on inclusivity and diversity. We can't afford to be insular. We can't afford um, to, uh, to, have, to have a monolith of employees um, and, and to promote like one ideal type of employee. Like that's just not the world we live in. Uh, and look at skill sets, not specific jobs. Uh, finally, uh, there's going to be shifting company responsibilities. So the public expects different things of organizations, not just the bottom line for shareholders, but corporate social responsibility and the opportunity to, to provide social good back to our communities is so important. And of course, we know that there's a shifting geopolitical landscape, the rise of China, India, the global south. Um, we know that just geopolitically, uh, there, there's been a huge shift over the last four years uh, in terms of, of uh, power and governments uh, around the globe, including in the U.S. Uh, and so we need to take all of those things into account. Uh, very, uh, very important. Okay, so this next slide is super busy, right? There's all this information happening on here. Um, but the, the, the thing that I think is really important is to recognize the intersection of work and technology, um, the amplification of the individual in terms of social, collective, uh, uh, improvisational, rather, and augmented individual work. Um, that we are looking for sustainable enterprises, we're looking for more integration of science at work, more diversity and diversity redefined, healthy environments and workplaces, so on and so forth. These are all the types of things um, that are going to be heavily important in the future of our economies uh, and the future of the jobs that we create for people. Now, I argue that it is vital for organizations to promote interdisciplinarity in organizational future. So interdisciplinarity involves the combining of two or more disciplines into one activity, and is about creating something new by crossing boundaries and thinking across them. So we want innovation, we want creativity, we want new approaches, um, uh, new efficiencies. We want all of these types of things. Um, and so we want to engage our HR students and practitioners and our employees um, to help them develop integrated knowledge, insights, problem-solving skills, self-confidence, self-efficacy, and passion for continuous learning. These are all what we want to do within our organizations. And ultimately, uh, inter, uh, disciplinary professional development um, promotes the realization of these types of uh, objectives. And research has shown 
that uh, we need to promote and, and find gains in recognizing bias, thinking critically, tolerating ambiguity, and, and being open to change and disruption, that we need to better acknowledge and appreciate ethical concerns and be more corporate, uh, more socially responsible as corporations and organizations. Um, ultimately, we need to get out of our silos and we need to promote um, better integration. So why should we try to get out of these functional silos? Um, I think studying the overlap, studying uh, the in-between between these traditional functions provides us so much opportunity for organizational learning and helps us learn how to be more successful. Now, higher education is known for its silos, but corporations have them too. And we need to break those down and we need to integrate and we need to find ways to support each other. Um, I love this, uh, this, this parable, the blind man and the elephant, um, the, the fact that diversity is so critically and vitally important in the future of work because one individual's perspective simply isn't enough. Like we, we just don't see the whole picture. And so just like in this, um, in this parable, um, one person is convinced, absolutely convinced that the elephant's leg is a tree. One person's absolutely convinced that the tail is a rope, that the ear is a fan, that the tusk is a spear, so on and so forth. Um, and the reality is they're all limited in their understanding. And only as we bring together diverse teams, not just racially, ethnically, not just gender. The, I mean, these are all important, but that we also recognize all sorts of diversity and that we value the diversity. So we see in the diversity wheel that we have those kind of more obvious types of diversity that we need, that we usually do pay attention to in organizations, gender, physical and mental ability, age, race, those sorts of things. But there's things that maybe are less obvious that we don't necessarily just see by being in the room with a person. Religion and belief, social class and socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, ethnic heritage, right? And then you go even further out into the green circle and you're looking at things like experience and functional knowledge, uh, communication style, cultural background, political beliefs, family status, organizational role, birthplace, community relationships, expertise, income, health, first language, like all of this is added to that, what we were talking about with uh, human capital in the past and is so vitally important, excuse me, so vitally important as we try to have uh, effective organizations. I love the parable of the frog in the well. I've spent extensive amounts of time in South Korea um, living and working and learning the Korean language and learning about the culture and learning the, the proverbs, the sokdams, they call them. Um, and one of my favorites that I learned very early on is umul ane geguri, which literally means frog at the bottom of a well. And if you think about a frog at the bottom of a well, you, you know, you're trapped. It's cold, it's wet, it's dark, right? There's, you're so limited at the bottom of that well. Um, and you're looking up and you're seeing the sky above you and there's only a sliver of sky and, and your world is so incredibly limited, right? Um, now there's a difference though. There's a difference between being a frog at the bottom of a well where you fell into the well and you were trapped, but there's a completely, it's a completely different thing to be a frog at the bottom of a well where that's where you were born and raised, right? Um, because you don't know any different if you were born and raised there. And so Koreans will use this proverb to describe people um, who kind of walk around life 
with blinders on, right? Head in the sand. Like they're they're kind of either ignorant or oblivious to the world, the broader world around them, kind of narrow-minded. Okay. And sometimes that's by choice because of discomfort. And so we choose to go into the well or we accidentally fall in the well, right? But a lot of that's just natural to our upbringing. We all are born within a particular context, within a particular cultural environment, within a particular family um, setup where we learn values uh, and we, we uh, uh, integrate those into our understanding of self in the world, right? And so over time, as we age and we mature, we have the opportunity to, to develop and extend our understanding of the world around us. And we kind of rise out of the well, so to speak. And once we get to the top of that well and we peek our little head over the edge, then all of a sudden we recognize and we know we see that there are we're not the only well. There's actually this broad world around us. There's all these diverse landscapes. There's mountains and, and rivers and streams and valleys and prairies. And there's all different types of animals. So it's not just the frogs right at the bottom of the well, but there's all these other animals. And and um, you, you also look out and you see that there are other wells all over the place. So you're not you're you don't come from the only well, but in fact there are little frogs peeking their heads out of all these different wells all over the landscape, right? So some people get to the top of the well and they think, wow, this is exciting, um, and they want to go explore. Uh, but other frogs realize very quickly that despite the limitations, they were also safe at the bottom of that well, and so they retreat back into the well where they aren't going to be hunted by predators, um, where it's comfortable and where it's it, where it's known, where they where they know what to expect, right? And still, other frogs will get to the top, and they'll they'll un, they'll recognize the dangers of being outside the well, but they also see the limitations of their own upbringing within their own well, and they see all these other wells, and so they decide, hey, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go explore these other wells, and then they end up just going into a different well for safety and security, and that's kind of equivalent to trading ideology for ideology, and I find it fascinating that a lot of individuals and organizations do this too, that a lot of times or uh, individuals will kind of jettison, um, you know, aspects of maybe their upbringing. Or, or um, particular institutions that they've been associated with that they don't feel comfortable with anymore, they feel are lacking or limited or um, have problems, right? And then they just go to the next thing, the new ideology, whether that's political, social, religious, whatever, um, or they, they go to a new organization that has similar problems that the old organization had, they just manifest themselves differently. And we just, the grass isn't greener, I guess is my point. Like, Every ideology um, has its own limitations. Uh, and the, the important thing is not really whether we decide to go back into our own well or to go into a different well or to not go into any well and just explore. Like the important thing is that, that we recognize the diversity that's around us, that we recognize the vastly different ways that people think and understand the same set of information that just because they disagree, they're not bad people. But we need, do need to find ways to have a shared common language and shared meaning and shared purpose so that we can work uh, effectively together, right? And then we still need to find ways to, to, uh, to go against, you know, things like sexism, racism, uh, homophobia, bigotry of all types and stripes, right? Like those things, like it's not okay to, it's not equally equivalent to just have a disagreement about, about being sexist. Uh, in today's world. Um, you and I might disagree on what sexist behavior is, but we need to get to a point where we can just agree that yes, sexist behavior is wrong. Um, we need to treat people with dignity and respect, regardless of your own perspective. Uh, and that there are certain things that will not be tolerated because they are harmful and hurtful to other people. 
Um, so we need to think of our organizations that way. We need to think of our personal interactions with others that way as well. Okay, so with that as all kind of a bit of background and thinking about diversity, thinking about difference, thinking about the interconnected global um, marketplace that we live in, um, think now we, we can think a little bit more about the future of work. Um, the underlying drivers, the economic structure, the labor displacement, emerging landscape, all these things that will be shifting over the next coming decades. Um, uh, and looking at things like connectivity, uh, machine capabilities, shifting demographics, social expectations. In terms of economy, we have modularization, globalization, productivity and value uh, polarization uh, for labor displacement, remote work, workplace uh, work marketplaces, crowdsourcing, work, worker replacement, and emerging landscape. We have economy of individuals, polarization of work, higher perform high performance organizations, changes in education. And there's so many things we could talk about in each of these categories that we don't have time for today. Um, but each of these are vitally important for organizational leaders to think about and consider as they are trying um, to effectively prepare for the future. So let's talk a minute about disruptive uh, and innovative technologies and how those are going to disrupt labor markets. Again, this, this one slide could be a multi-hour conversation and we're only going to take a few minutes. Um, but I think it's important to think about um, labor market disruption and as we're thinking about the shifting nature of work. We know that robotics for a long time has been changing the face of work and it's been displacing jobs. This is only going to continue as the, uh, the uh, sophistication um, in, uh, of robotics and um, the technological um, advancements continue to increase what they're capable of doing. So no longer will it just be robotic arms in a factory, um, but like literally there are examples in the hotel industry, for example, where you have robotic, um, uh, hotel attendants that that help people as they come into the hotel and to check in people who uh, robots that deliver room service um, uh, things of that nature like there, there are so many robotics that are starting to move in to uh, all different forms of, of workplaces that are just going to displace workers um, electric cars I my family has two electric cars we love them they're awesome um, but electric cars are changing and will continue to change the nature of the automobile industry and and change the types of work that is done. Um, electric cars in and of themselves, though, aren't as disruptive as things like self-driving cars. Now, we've had self-driving airplanes for decades. So the technology in terms of uh, how to fly um, with with uh, a pilot, obviously, who's there um, to to uh, do the instrumentation and to help with things if and when things don't go to plan, you know, that's important, but airplanes have largely been self-driving for a really long time. Uh, and the technology exists for for cars to do the same thing. I'm not sure we're socially there yet um, as a society to accept self-driving cars, but basically the technology is there. And so we're going to see things like self-driving vehicles that will reshape the automotive industry and the, the whole consumer behavior behind driving cars and ride shares and, um, and like truck, the truck driving industry, like the technology already exists to replace truck drivers with, um, with uh, self-driving trucks that can deliver goods. Um, we're, again, socially, we're not there yet. And politically, we're not there yet to allow that to happen. Um, but but that's, that's 
that's coming, right? And it's going to cause a lot of displacement of jobs and a lot of dis disruption of labor markets. Uh, pharmacogenetics, like the, the nature of the pharmacist shifting and changing to what they do and what they provide um, and the ability for them using new technologies and new equipment to on-site within the pharmacy um, create specialized, individualized drugs specifically to your uh, genome and specifically to your medical history. That is coming. Quantum entanglement. There's been some super interesting research related to quantum entanglement um, in recent years that, you know, it's still in incredibly early stages. But if we get there in the next decade or two, um, then, you know, it could completely change the whole telecommunication industry, how we communicate with each other, um, how how we um, even travel and, and deal with um deal with uh, the delivery of goods and services. 3D printing obviously is around now, but as, as the equipment becomes more affordable, as it becomes more sophisticated, um, as, as things uh, become more readily available across households, then there, there is a clear potential to disrupt uh, marketplaces, um, stores, um, you know, if, if I can just put in a program into my 3D printer for a new pair of sneakers and have it spit out a pair of sneakers, I don't even need to go to the store for that, right? I just need the, the raw materials to, that I purchase and go into the 3D printer. And then I come out with my own 3D printed um, uh, sneakers, right? Or whatever I want to produce. Virtual presence is super interesting. So, you know, there, there's holograms that's been around for a long time. Virtual presence is a little different and it's, it's kind of upping the ante. That with virtual presence, we can see, I mean, it feels like the the, the person is right there with us, um, which has all sorts of implications for international travel and doing business across the globe and virtual teams. If I can feel like I'm in the room with um, other coworkers on a virtual team, or I'm like, I'm an academic, right? I go to conferences, I present research. If I can go to a conference in China through virtual presence where it seems as though I'm in the room so that conference attendees, you know, don't just see me on a screen like, you know, through a video conference call, but they actually, it seems like I'm there. I mean, that's incredible. That technology has all sorts of implications for disrupting all sorts of industries. Uh, you've probably thought and talked a lot about blockchain within your organizations. Um, that can disrupt a lot of things. Um, it's going to disrupt higher education. It's going to uh, disrupt banks and financial institutions is going to uh, disrupt the accounting profession. It's going to disrupt um, uh, the, the, the legal profession, so many different things. Um, and I'm sure all of you have, have benefited from things like auto translation, auto reality or augmented reality, like just on our cell phones, the, the power that is in those cell phones to create these unique environments for us where I, I can travel to any country and offline, like I can download language packs in Google and offline, I can read signs. I can um, translate what people say to me. I can translate what I want to say to other people or written language, right? All of that is just easily doable right from my phone, right? And so much of that is driven by um, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, augmented reality is super cool. You know, the, the emergence of Pokemon Go was a classic example of this. Um, so anyways, there's lots and lots of things and examples we could talk about. Retail without people, 
um, grocery stores have already started experimenting with this. You know, we, you have automatic checkout lines where you can go through and check yourself out. Um, but then there's stores that have, have uh, uh, experimented with, you don't even need to go through a checkout line. Like you just walk in, you put stuff in your cart and you walk out and it rings you up and charges you as you're doing that. Um, obviously that displaces people. And there are so many potential things that can be displaced with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, so thinking about that, uh, a group of um, global experts and, and uh, thinkers in relation to the future of work you know, we're thinking about what's the likely time frame of certain types of machine learning and disruption, okay? Um, being able to offer the same training as humans, for example, they, you know, there's a range, you know, some people say as soon as like five years, some people say it's more like 40 years out, the kind of the average is in that, you know, 10 to 15 year range. Um, uh, machine learning replacing salespeople, um, you know, in that 20, 10 to 20 year range, um, that most people think, um, but the ability for a machine to write a New York Times bestseller, most experts think that within the next um, several decades, that's likely to happen. Uh, Putting a math competition, same thing. Uh, a surgeon, like you wouldn't think of a surgeon as someone uh, that would be able to be easily replaced, but with robotics and machine learning, uh, that's something that's on the table. Math research, uh, high level machine intelligence for all human tasks, you know, people predict that even within the next two decades, but certainly within the next 50 years, that that's very possible. And within the next hundred years, that's incredibly possible. Uh, AI researchers and full automation of labor, all human jobs. You know, are we within a hundred plus years of basically replacing all human jobs with automated labor? I don't know. We don't have a crystal ball, but the, the truth is the way technology is going uh, and the, the increased um memory capacity uh, the increased uh processing speed that's exponentially growing um that the capability like we can't even fathom what the capabilities really are going to be in the coming decades so what does this all mean for strategic hr what are the core competencies of organizations that are prepared for these sorts of technological disruptions what's hr's role in technological unemployment and what does this mean for HR budgets and technical footprints moving forward? Whose role is it in the in HR to be the futurist, to start to try to strategize and think about these things and prepare for the unknown, right? And how do we get HR to look externally outside of the organization for strategy? These are really uh, important um, elements. And the truth is that we will, even immediately, we are starting to see um, how work is shifting. So this graphic is a little bit old, um, but you see the most valued skills in 2017, which is actually very similar to the most valued skills in 2018, 2019, and 2020. But as we move into the future, communication skills, leadership agility, eagerness to learn, emotional intelligence, understanding analytics, managing diversity, global mindset, conflict resolution, cultural agility, these are going to, going to continue to be incredibly uh, important. And you can see the types of jobs at risk, administrative jobs, manufacturing or production jobs, middle management, finance and accounting, uh, support staff, uh, even human resources, uh, many functions within HR currently, all the transactional HR types of functions, those are largely going to be replaced. And so HR is going to 
remain, but it's going to transform and it's going to be even more strategic in its orientation. Um, other information technologies, right? So there's all these different things going on. Skills needed in the future of the workplace, computational skills, um, globally connected world um, where there's super structured organizations, where we have longer, you know, because of health and medical advancements, extreme longevity, um, more smart machines and new media ecology. So we need cognitive load management. We need virtual collaboration. We need new media literacy, cross-cultural competencies, um, novel and adaptive thinking, sense-making, design mindset, and transdisciplinarity uh, and interdisciplinarity. Those are all like vital as we move into the future. Uh, we need to think about attracting and retaining not just millennial talent, but Gen Z talent. And there's distinct differences across the labor force uh, in these different age cohorts. And much of my own research looks at those um, generational differences. Um, you can see some of those differences right here uh, provided from a report from Microsoft. Uh, and the rise of the gig economy. Uh, now, the informal economy is not new. That's been around for a really long time, and it's more prominent in some economies than others. But globally, we see the rise in the gig economy, more people doing um, project-based work, more, more people doing side gigs and side jobs. Um, and that growth is just going to continue in the coming decades. So here you can see a graph with the rise of gig work. Um, that's just, it's growing rapidly. It didn't grow that much. Uh, the informal economy and gig work didn't rise that much uh, in the decade from 95 to 2005, but the next decade it grew tremendously and it's grown tremendously again in the last five years. So I come back to how can we break free from our functional silos to drive organizational innovation, creativity and effectiveness um, as we think about creative solutions to people management problems and challenges. Uh, ultimately, um, we need to uh, really think about uh, how to, how to have cross-functional teams, how to work more uh, integratively and collaboratively, right? It creates innovation. It creates, um, it enhances creativity. Uh, it gives us the opportunity to have new breakthroughs and, and, and be on the wave of disruption, um, which is so exciting. So I think that there's a necessity for interdisciplinarity for the future of strategic HR, organizational leadership, and the future of work. Uh, and it's something that I am passionate about to try to help organizations be ready for this and to be able to achieve this where they can recognize by where employees and leaders can recognize bias, think critically, tolerate ambiguity and embrace change and disruption and acknowledge and appreciate ethical concerns that are going to be um, key and important to their organization in the future. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.